0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Unofficial Guide to Achieving Your Goals, and our author this morning is Onyx Jones. Welcome, Onyx, to the program.
2: Good morning. Thank you, Jay.
1: This is a book, obviously, about uh, getting success in your world, whether it's personal or business success, and very appropriate at the first of the new year, 2014. Thank you for joining me today. Tell me about your book. How did you get motivated to put this together?
2: Originally, I, just, I wanted to put something down in paper that could inspire people and help people pursue their dreams and their passion. Um, I worked uh, in environments where I had a lot of uh, staff and employees and uh, customers that came my way, and I found myself trying to give them, like, motivational quotes or things to inspire them um, just so that life just seemed like it would have more meaning. So I decided to put something down on paper, and then the more I wrote, the more I decided it really should be a book. Um, I have always had a passion for writing. I would find ways to write manuals because my field of work is accounting. So I would write manuals just so that I could satisfy that need of writing. Um, And so this writing the book kind of was a twofold. I could inspire people, but then I could also pursue my passion, uh, which is writing. And so I got to do two things at once. So it was really exciting putting the book together.
1: And your book, cover mentions this, Hold Yourself Accountable in Fun Ways. Expand on that for me a little bit, please.
2: Yeah, when you pursue your passion, you've got to be in a state of being excited about what you're doing. So if you read a book and it's too much like um, an instructional book where you have to check one, two, three, then it's not fun anymore. And then it kind of dampens the passion so when you go, my belief is when you go for your goals, you ought to do it with excitement. And so I try to make the book lighthearted. There's a chapter in there that talks about using a goals partner, so someone that can do it with you, someone you have fun with, someone that there's a lot of energy with. So the intent is when you're pursuing your passion, you're doing it with a high level of energy and excitement.
1: Well, you and I are probably motivated individuals. Um, Part of the dangers of that is getting so motivated that you begin to send yourself on a guilt trip. How do you avoid that?
2: Right. So in the book, uh, it talks about the idea that sometimes, some of us, we pursue careers that generate income for us, that help us with day-to-day. And so when you get into the idea of pursuing your passion, you want to just go for it. And sometimes you might have an imbalance, so that's where the guilt comes in because you have a career that you've got to continue because right now it's paying the bills, but you have this thing that you're passionate about and you want to now do it all the time, and so you have to have balance. There's actually a chapter in the book that has a budget that helps you draw out your budget. Because I believe that if your finances are in balance, then you don't have to feel guilty about pursuing your passion and doing things that you enjoy doing, especially when the intent is to monetize on those things that you're passionate about. But it helps you keep things in check, because while you're doing your passion, you still have to pay the mortgage or the rent. You still have to pay utilities and like, And so that's the chapter that really helps keep you grounded, it actually has a budget um, to help you kind of stay in balance. So there's no guilt needed. You get to do what you want to do as long as you know that your finances are intact and that you're being responsible and taking care of business.
1: There are also some ideas which are very apropos. Many of my authors journal, and in your book you've also suggested that the goal setter should journal. And among the things that you've mentioned, you, you say, number one, find five interesting motivational educational things in your reading, so a reading plan is important to them. Identify at least one thing you'd like to do or change in your relationship with others to improve your life. And the third one was discuss five things you are thankful for in your relationship with your goals partner or someone special in your life. And a goals partner, that can be someone that is um, an accountability partner also, wouldn't it be?
2: Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Someone that you enjoy spending time with, but someone also that will check you when you're not on track or someone that says, hey, you said you wanted to do this, this, and this, and so far you haven't done it. (laughs) So, yes, it's an accountability partner, someone that's fun, inspiring, gives you energy, but also says to you, hey, this is something you wanted to do. You need to make sure you stay on, on track with what you're trying to do.
1: Your book then has some practical application that an individual like myself or anyone else that wants to be motivated to achieve the next level in life, uh, they can do so by following some basic step-by-steps. Yes. Who do you think this book is going to appeal to and why?
2: Initially, when I wrote the book, I wanted it to appeal to uh, kind of the group of people that maybe doesn't read a whole lot, who, because my book is very short, very easy to read. You can flow right through it. Um, I have found so far since it's been released, a lot of young people love the book, which totally excites me because if you can have this information that's in this book at the age of, you know, 16 or 18, uh, how much different life can be because you've set off on the right track pursuing your passions, and also making sure you monetize and generate income. And so I'm I'm just really excited about uh, young people getting a hold of the book. Um, But it's really for anyone. There's a lot of quotes in the book. And sometimes, even if you really are happy with where you are in life and you're kinda on the right path, sometimes just reading a quote kind of inspires you. So there's tons of quotes in the book just to give inspiration. So really, anyone can read it and get something out of it. Um, But my real hope is that a lot of young people gravitate towards it and kind of get excited about life and living a life filled with passion and make decisions from the very beginning about their careers, and they can go into the path that they're really passionate about.
1: One thing I found in your book that is difficult for me to do, and I know other people who are motivated, is to identify your accomplishments. And sometimes we get Stuck in the weeds, looking at the things we have not done, instead of focusing on the things that we have done and accomplished. Those are important, uh, important uh, view, viewpoints that we need to assess in our lives.
3: You are
2: absolutely correct. Uh, I'm, I'm actually working on another book right now about how to actually start your business. You, you know, you go through the goals book. You decide you want to start a business, and the first chapter in the book. It talks about looking at your accomplishments. So I really think it's important. I'm reiterating this idea over and over again. You've got to look at what you've done. A lot of times, if you look at what you've accomplished, not only do you feel better about what you're doing and, and you get more energy, but you also kind of can find where your passion lies. You go, wow! I did this, this, and this. I really have some passion in that area. You know, I really ought to pursue that. Uh, sometimes it's the little successes that we maybe received in uh, while we were in school or in college that really are a telltale sign of some things that we're really passionate about. But somehow, you know, we moved into the career that was going to make us the most money or it was the easiest career to pursue or it was something that was just given to us, that opportunity, and we really didn't find the true passion. And so when you look at your accomplishments, things that you're most proud of, you'll you can kind of find out a little bit about yourself and you also get really excited and proud of, you know, what you've done. And it gives you motivation to keep doing more and, you know, achieving more.
1: And this is a kind of advice that parents can take on when they're motivating their kids. I have a situation in a family member that seems to focus on your not achievements. your Your goal may have been an A in this test and you received a B plus and a B plus may have been your best or your best effort, but here comes human nature. We're in a very competitive world, we tend to focus on others instead of on ourselves and just doing our best and celebrating the accomplishments. Well, this is your book, not mine, and enough of my commentary. Describe the process of writing your book. How did you go about putting it together?
2: Well, I'll tell you, I I lived it. (laughs) I read, I love to read, so... I read a lot of uh, material and books. And there's some books that I read from years ago, like The Master Key System by Charles Channel, um, that I know many young people wouldn't be interested in reading. So I kind of glean from those uh, that information, and I pull that stuff out. And I go, now, how can I write that concept in today's language? How, you know, how can young people relate to this? Because I believe a lot of information from books uh, in the 1800s, et cetera, can give you a lot of insight. And even though it's from years ago, the same rules apply. I mean, it still can be used today. And so I read a lot, and then I also lived it. You know, I went through a process of identifying where my passion lied and, and, and kind of transitioning in order to even write this book because, as I indicated before, my field was accounting. And so I, you know, I did numbers, but I had this passion for writing. So lots of research, reading other material, and then also being willing to just document my life. So I have journals and journals and journals of uh, years where I would just kind of document my process uh, in, in going through today, even writing the book. So coming from a field of accounting to the day where I'm actually you know, writing a book about gold, So it was really exciting um, to just sit down and put things down on paper and pull out research and, and uh, pull out my journals. and It was really a, a great process. I, I got a lot out of it.
1: One question that you posed for the reader that caught my attention was this. If you, reader, were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize... What would you want it received for? That's a statement that would cause reflection.
2: Oh. Yeah, I, you know, for me, when I wrote the book, I had a goal. And my goal, and it's still my goal, is that this book actually can shift the way people think and and even change certain cultures and, and change, um, you know, certain groups of people, a generation. So if one person reads the book and starts thinking differently, they're going to have different conversations with different people. And so now they're making an impact. And they don't realize what impact they're having because now they're going to say certain things, maybe from the book, that inspired them to other people. And then those people are going to think about life differently. And then they're going to share that new thought. So, slowly and gradually, you're you're changing a culture. I mean, everybody's talking differently. They're talking about pursuing their passion. And I think, you know, when you win a Nobel Peace Prize, basically that's what you're saying. You've impacted a large number of people in a positive way. And you may not get the Nobel Nobel Peace Prize for your, your efforts, but it's the same concept. You're impacting people through... Your everyday connection with people, inspiring them, motivating them, you know, taking one quote from the book and using it all the time to inspire other people. You know, it's it, nobody is limited on the impact that they can have in this world. They really aren't. And some people get recognized for it and some don't. But you know what? It's, it's about when you live your life and, you, you know, it's time to say goodbye that you said, you know, hey, I had an impact on as many people's lives as I could, and it was positive, and it was motivational, and I feel good
1: about that. Well, considering you're a detailed person, obviously, if you're in the accounting or have an accounting background, it's wonderful that you've been able to put together a book that is motivational, inspirational, and only 83 pages, so anybody should be able to read this. This is a great book. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes, you know
1: besides Besides being a, a book that's brief in its uh, content, but very impactful in the ideas you put together, what other things set this apart from others in the marketplace?
2: Well, one of the things is um, I, I read a lot as I indicated, and I usually get books that really motivate me and inspire me and get me going, but then that's <laughs> it. And so I wanted to write a book that would actually be something you could continue to pick up and continue working the steps. So this book is 86 pages because if it were any longer, nobody would finish it. I want people to get through the book, read it, and finish it, and then I want them to go back over and over and over because this is like a formula. You know, if A plus B equals C. So if you put the first goal in, and then you put the effort and the desire, and then you you and it equals the win, and you get to pursue your passion and the goals achieved. Well, now you can put the second goal in the formula. So you go back and you read the book again, um, and you, so you can continue to pick it up, you know, and keep reading it. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's short to the point, but it has specific steps. It is a formula. You can follow the steps. It's seven steps, it's not too difficult, but it has a formula that, will, that if you follow, you will get success. And I think kind of where it sets it apart is it's short, it's easy to read, it's kind of fun to do, but it has a formula that actually walks you through specific steps that you need to take to really achieve your goals, and it works. And you can pick it up and read it over and over and over and you're going to get the same positive results.
1: Among the seven chapters you've written, one is titled, Improve Your Talents and Skills. Is there anything in there that's unique in that particular chapter or Is it following a standard pattern of recommendations?
2: Well, I think whenever you're trying to pursue uh, enhancing your skills and things, uh, my theory is that there's some people out there that have done it already and they've maybe uh, achieved the level of success you desire to achieve. So in my book, I challenge you to find those people and study them and research them and really get in touch with what things that they do in life that help them get successful. And so that way you can kind of put that in your mind and you you can visualize, you can see yourself making those same steps, doing those same things. Um, so the unique part of it is really the piece of, um, it's more studying the craft of others in order to implement within yourself. Sometimes we get discouraged. If we know that we want to enhance our communication skills, per se, and we're not getting the level of success that we think we should. We get discouraged. We go, oh, I can't do this. Oh, I'm too nervous. I can't stand in front of people. I sweat. You know, you come up with all these reasons why you can't do it. Well, if you're always focusing on other people that are doing it successfully, the only thing that you're really visualizing and seeing is how it works successfully. Eventually, the subconscious kicks in, you start operating and doing those same things um so that you can have success so it takes you out of yourself and helps you look at something that's working and i I just maintain that if you're always focusing on things that are working that things that are successful things that have already been proven to have success if you're always focusing on that then you're going to gravitate towards that you're going to start enhancing your skills in a more positive manner and it kind of shuts down the negative talk and chatter oh I can't do it I'm not good enough Um, You kind of don't even have time to focus on that because you're too busy trying to get to, you know, your goal. And that's where you're focused. That's where you're you're centered on. So, you know, I'm hoping that those chapters there really uh, set themselves apart from maybe other books just because of of that one fact right there.
1: Great advice. Was there anything challenging about putting this book together?
2: Yes. I was, you know, I was um, working full time. I was a mom. I had gotten married, so I had a new family and, you know, life. And there was so much going on. But I did what I said in my book. I took time out, whether it was 15 minutes or an hour, to write the book because it was something I was really passionate about and I enjoyed doing it. And I just, whenever I had a moment and it took a while to actually, you know, finish the book but uh wow when i was done i was so pleased and i was really very um impressed with the work of iuniverse as well i mean they helped me through the whole process so it was it was fun but it was challenging with balancing but i actually lived what the book talks about doing which is pursue your passion and it becomes more and more a part of your life and you find time for it. You make time for it.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Onyx, for joining me today. Again, the book title is The Unofficial Guide to Achieving Your Goals, Seven Steps to Creating Your Roadmap to Success. And our author is Onyx Jones. Onyx, where do we get copies of this book?
2: Oh, right now you can acquire them on Amazon.com and Barnes &
1: Noble. Fabulous. And do you personally have a website yet?
2: Not yet, but we're working on it. So we'll be up and running
1: shortly. All right, Onyx, thank you again for joining me today. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody.
2: This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
4: Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 3 central on toginet.com.
0: To iUniverse Radio with host
5: Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Under Color of Law, and the author is A. Dwight Pettit, and Dwight joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dwight. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? Happy holidays to you. Well, thank you, and happy holidays to you. And This story is your personal story from the 40s to the present time, dealing with the civil rights movement, constitutional uh, issues. Of course, you're a civil rights and constitutional and criminal lawyer, uh, but we're really going to celebrate the life of your father and all that you learned and then some of your accomplishments as well, correct? That's correct. So how long have you been a criminal lawyer? Well, Steve, I've been practicing law
6: in Baltimore, Maryland for 40 years exactly. I did three years prior to that with the Small Business Administration in Washington, D.C. right after law school. But when I came back home to Baltimore, I opened my private practice in the area of criminal law, constitutional law, civil rights, and personal injury. So I've been a lawyer
5: totally for 43 years, but 40 years in private practice. Well, take us back, Dwight, take us back to a time when you were a young boy and your father was a local civil rights leader. What do you remember?
6: Well, my father was the first black engineer employed here by the United States Army Army at uh, Fort Holabird, and uh, his, his section division uh, closed down, and he was transferred to a place called Aberdeen Proving Ground, one of the largest military scientific bases uh, in the country. And uh, he was one of the few black engineers, or maybe the only black engineer, uh, there. And unknowing to him, the schools were still segregated. They were desegregating very slowly, because Brown versus the Board of Education had already been passed, but they were not admitting uh, students. At, at large, it was, you had to go through an application test, and at that point in time, they had it should, it had, uh, had not admitted any black males to the Aberdeen High School. Uh, so as a result, my father uh, came and retained or uh, secured the NAACP, some great lawyers, Juanita Jackson Mitchell, uh, Fargood Marshall, Jack Greenberg, and Tucker Daring, and took it into the United States Federal District Court. Uh, We were successful in that case, and I was ordered into Aberdeen High School at the 10th grade uh, at approximately 14, 15 years old. I didn't have any problems, Steve, because I was an athlete, and people just, if you can throw the ball, catch the ball, run the ball, people sort of gravitate to you and and, uh, accept you. Uh So even in an all-white situation, I didn't have any major problems or impediments. I had one little fight, and after I dusted that person off, I was sort of accepted by all the students in the school. But my father caught pure D. Hell. Uh, they put rebel flags up in his office. They played Dixie when he walked through the door. Uh, they wouldn't give him a phone and a uh, secretary and all of those type of things to demean him. And for 14 years, he was never promoted. Uh, he was told that he wouldn't be promoted because of what he'd done in the school system. And plus, he was vice president of the NAACP and active in the integration of restaurants and things like that. And so I had the opportunity to grow up, uh, finish Aberdeen High School, go to Howard University undergrad, Howard University Law School, take the Maryland Bar and come back and take my father's case. Uh, Because at this time, no case had gone up uh, to the high courts in relationship to back pay, and especially for federal employees in Uh, the United States government, even though Title VII had been passed, it had not incorporated federal employees. And so we went before the United States Court of Claims with the help of a man by the name of Paul Tagliabue, who would later become uh, NFL Commissioner of Football. But he assisted me because he had a case that was a prior case in the Court of Claims, but the U.S. Court of Claims took my case and heard it first in bank, which means all seven judges, and they found in favor of my father and awarded him $100,000 back pay, which was a lot of money at that time, and four years, I mean, four promotions and all privileges and immunities that went with uh, GS-14 is what he's promoted to from the GS-11. And what that case did, it established two things, that there could be a relief in, in terms of back pay and retroactive pay for federal employees, uh, even though Title VII had not been passed, and also it established the what is called the but-for test, which was the evidentiary test around the country uh, in terms of if you proved that you were qualified, then the burden of proof shifted to the defense to show why you had not been promoted but for racial discrimination. So the, the case became a landmark around this nation. And I would go into courtrooms and federal courtrooms and federal administrative hearings, And the judge would always ask me, Mr. Pettit, uh, do you have anything to do with Pettit versus the United States and that it governs the rules of evidence for our proceedings? And I'll always say with great pride that uh, George D. Pettit is my father and I was my father's lawyer. And when the case went up to the United States Supreme Court through another case called Teston versus the United States, the court firmly said that if it had received Pettit, it would have reversed Pettit because only Congress can make those laws uh, not presidential executive orders. And But at that time, by the time the Supreme Court addressed the matter, we had settled, my father had been promoted, and, every, and he had been totally vindicated for all of those years of sacrifice and torment as a result of him putting me and securing a, a proper education for me, uh, his son, starting in the 10th grade. So that's that's the story in a nutshell in relationship to one of the main themes of um, uh, uh, under color of law is the, the three cases that I refer to as the legal trilogy in my life, Pettit versus the uh, Board of Education of Harford County, Pettit versus the United States, my father, which I was counsel, and Pettit versus the Board of Law Examiner that I had to file suit against the state of Maryland when I came here to practice law.
5: Well, that's quite a story and quite an accomplishment, and I can't even imagine the thrill to represent your father and uh, win in court for, obviously, uh, his just due.
6: Well, I'll tell you, Steve, you you can't even imagine the way I felt when I walked into that court well in front of seven federal judges, and my mother and father were sitting behind me, and my wife and my secretary uh, the feeling is indescribable as I go into it in the book, uh, to be able to be blessed. I'm very religious, uh, to be able to be blessed, uh, by God, to have that opportunity, uh, to vindicate and fight for people who had given their whole life, uh, fighting for me.
5: Tell us about the challenges when you were much younger as a child, when you were personally attacked by the media. What what was, that must have been an ordeal.
6: Well, Steve, you hit it right on the head. Because what my father did, when they denied me admission to the Aberdeen High School, he sent me 30 miles away back to Baltimore and boarded me out with a very nice family in Baltimore so I wouldn't get academically behind. And so that was like my third school in uh in a three-year period of time before I was admitted to Aberdeen High School. And so I go into this new school. The school in Baltimore City was called Lamel. I had been going to the black school in the county before we went to Aberdeen, which was Solace Point. So I had gone to all of these different schools, that he was determined to keep me up to par academically. So that if we did win the suit, I would be able to academically compete. And it was just such a, a thing to walk into that classroom and be on the front page of the Baltimore Sun, which was our basically our state newspaper at the time, where they were talking about my shortcomings and uh, the allegations from the other side that I was mentally retarded, uh, that my IQ tests were not up to par with white students, and that the county was basically trying to protect me from having to compete with white students with a, a much more superior intellect and my intellect being... Uh, basically inferior, and so with the press bombarding me uh, with that and so forth. It was quite an experience to uh, be in school 30 miles away from home at 14 years old, uh, living with an uh, alien family that I later became to know and love, uh, and to be going home every weekend. But my father was so uh, determined that I was going to have every chance in life. Uh, he hired all types of tutors for me. I had uh, tutors in math and tutors in English and tutors in Spanish. So when I came home for the weekend, I had to meet with my tutors uh, all uh, mm. all Saturdays and Sundays. So I didn't, as a fourteen-year-old, I didn't have much of. I had no social life whatsoever. Everything was dedicated to the litigation. As I said, Thurgood Marshall was here, and needed Jackson Mitchell, and we were preparing for trial. They were having me take an additional test uh, to rebut the foolishness that the state had come up with. They pulled what they called achievement tests and IQ tests uh, when I was in the third and fourth grade, and who knows what I was focusing on or what I was thinking about, or for that matter, I was such a— a rebellious kid that I didn't even know what I would have been thinking about much lesson achievement test when I was in the third and fourth grade. But that was the evidence that they were allegedly using against mm-hmm. me and that's what was hitting the national media and particularly the the media here in Maryland, uh the Baltimore Sun. So that's it was quite a an impact and, and mental challenge of me to to deal with that on a day daily basis because the kids knew it, the teachers knew it and and uh, I was determined to prove a moment. The court says, as I say in my book, that it was so astonishing because the court actually says when they were delivering on, deliberating on the case that I had been elected class president, was elected to the student council and was elected chief judge of the school court all in one year in the ninth grade. So the judge, Roselle Thompson at the time, chief judge of the Maryland U.S. District Court. So the kid can't be be that dumb and do all the things that he's doing.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and your book also focuses on your part in the Jimmy Carter administration.
6: Yes, that was a fascinating experience. In fact, let me just tell you, uh, if I may, Steve, I got a fantastic letter from Jimmy Carter a couple of weeks ago because I sent him and Rosalind a copy of the book. And it was just so awesome. At that time, I was determined to get into politics. I had returned back to Baltimore. And I had the opportunity to meet uh, President, well, he was Governor Carter then, very early on the campaign trail. And uh, I became very much involved in his campaign because I was one of the first African-Americans Uh, coming into the campaign outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and especially being an African-American civil rights attorney. And so I I became had the good fortune of becoming very, very close to he, uh, his son, Chip Carter, and his wife, uh, Rodney Carter, and becoming very much involved in the Carter campaign. We got so close. I'll tell you a little story I tell in the book, that uh, when he was nominated, when he was elected president of the United States, On inauguration night, my family, my father and my mother, my wife and I were there, and the Secret Service came and got us and said, Mr. Pettit, uh, the President of the United States wants you and Mrs. Pettit to join him for the first dance in the nation. And so we walked into a roped-off circle. Uh, with President Carter and Mrs. Carter and dance, along with uh, a man by the name of James Rouse, who was the builder of several cities in this nation and harbors and so forth, and the Senator Rob out of, out of Virginia. We all danced the first dance uh, with the president. And I captured all this in pictures because uh, I was always paying photographers to, in fact, take the pictures while these things were happening. But one of the things that brought Jimmy Carter, or let me say President Carter, Uh, very close, and what brought us very close, was when, I don't know if you remember, but they had the ethnic purity crisis, where he was Mm. alleged to have made the statement about ethnic purities of neighborhoods. What he was really talking about was that he saw no problem in maintaining ethnic heritage in neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods, Chinese neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. But the press blew it up that it was... a. a racist remark by a Georgia governor, and this almost derailed his presidency or his campaign. And what I did sent him a telegram. He was in Chicago at the time, and he got the telegram, and I basically gave him advice as to how we could battle that situation and put it to rest. And he was so impressed by what I had advised him and what I told him uh, that I got a call from the campaign that, President, or that then Governor Carter wanted to meet me for breakfast at the Hilton Hotel, in, in Washington, D.C. the next day. And so I was just knocked off of my feet that I was actually going to have president. I mean, breakfast with a man who might be the next president of the United States. And so from there on, I was probably as close as anybody uh, could be uh, to a president right on through inauguration and transition and right on into the White House. I was at the first state dinner, my wife and I, I was at the, the peace treaty signing between Begin and Sadat, Uh, everything that happened in the White House uh, for the next four years, I was right there and involved even though I was nominated for U.S. Attorney of Maryland, which would have made me the first black U.S. attorney uh, for a state in the nation, but that was blocked then uh, by Junior Senator Paul Sarbanes. So that nomination or appointment never took place, but it still had nothing to do with the relationship that I enjoyed with the Carters Uh, during their four years in the White House. And what he did was appoint me to the Democratic National Compliance Commission of the Democratic Party, and I was assigned there as the trial lawyer to fight to make sure that at that time uh, Ted Kennedy did not uh, usurp the nomination for the 1980 race by, in fact, taking any delegates that were not uh, supposed to go to him. So I was put in a very, very important, what I consider an important role of advocacy
5: Uh, in the DNC uh, during Carter's White House uh, tenure. The book is titled Under Color of Law. We're talking about perseverance, determination, survival, literally when the going gets tough, the tough get going, one of your key messages. Uh, Dwight, tell us how to get your book.
6: Well, you can get it through, I understand now, it's on the shelves at uh, Barnes & Noble, but I know you can order it through Barnes & Noble. If you don't have a Barnes & Noble there, if it's not on the shelves of your local Barnes & Noble, and you also can get it through Amazon.com, and you can also get it from the publishers, uh, which is www.iUniverse.com.
5: They have a bookstore online. Thank you so much, Dwight, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve, and uh, you have a great holiday.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there we can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central, on toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host
5: Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Leadership for Adolescents. And the author is Carolyn M. Anderson, and Carolyn joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Carolyn.
3: Hello, and good morning to you.
5: Great to have you with us, Carolyn. Let me read just a, a short introduction to your book so everyone understands the breadth of leadership for adolescents. It offers seven steps to communication competencies and skills that will prepare them to be a more effective leader and or follower, each chapter's exercises reinforce learning from self-reflection, original case studies, interpersonal and small group discussions, and individual skill practices. Very comprehensive book, and yet not a long book. That's another thing I want to emphasize. It isn't some textbook, is it? <laughs> it isn't. And, and
3: I did that for a so, reason. Because uh, I think that uh, you know sometimes we get caught up in too much wording and so forth, and we, we tend to lose the focus of what we're really trying to do. So I tried to write it as concisely as possible.
5: Well, we're going to talk about these seven steps uh, briefly in the time we have about increasing people's skills and making them more competent especially, of course, as you focus on uh, teenagers. But let's learn about you, Carolyn, your background and why you wrote the book.
3: Okay. Uh, Well, I have worked in business and industry for over 20 years, and some of that time was spent in leadership roles. And then I made a career change, and I went back to school and decided that I didn't want to work in business and industry any longer other than as a consultant. Uh, So I uh, went on and I decided I wanted to teach, and so I uh, completed all the necessary rigor (laughs) to get my Ph.D., Uh, and uh, after that, I was very fortunate to be able to begin teaching uh, and also to have a tenure-track position. And so in that position, I was able to uh, teach leadership uh, and bring that to the University of Akron in uh, small group. I'm also a small group expert. And uh, so I've been teaching and researching and studying uh, leadership and those various topics uh, from a communication perspective. And so I came to write this particular book. Uh, I have used a very good book in my teaching and I taught it at the senior and graduate school level. Uh, and there's a very good textbook out there and I thought, you know, I, 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 I want to write something for an earlier age group, I had uh, read an article that said, uh, "We don't start early enough uh, in our educational exposure as as young people uh, to learn some of these things." And uh, you know students in my graduate class and, and senior level class said, "You know I wish I'd had this class sooner uh, because it would have helped me through my academic career and given me a lot more confidence in being uh, in group work and being a leader and and being taking those kinds of steps. So that was the appeal for me. Uh, And then I read an article by Whitehead, whom I I quote in the book, uh, that said we need to do this. And so I thought this is the perfect opportunity for me to write a book about leadership uh, and uh, target it for that younger audience Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, even, you know, People in college can read it, Uh, and parents have even said to me, I'm anxious to read it myself uh, so that I can help my uh, children and my adolescents, you know, in their development. So that was my inspiration, and I'm very uh, pleased to have completed that now. I am emeritus uh, uh, status. I did retire last year from the university after 21 years of teaching, Uh, and so now I'm devoting myself to writing, I uh, and uh, researching, and also my uh, consulting company. So this is a, a step and a goal of mine. And now that it's complete, I'm, I'm a happy camper.
5: <laughs> well, it sounds like you really will be a great strength and a great asset to uh, this whole audience that you're focused on, uh, this young audience. And it makes sense that that college students would say, "I wish I'd have had this earlier." So, with all the messages, you get several messages in your book. If you had to pick one, what would you say is you know one of the uh, things you'd like the reader, the uh, student to take away from your book?
3: Well, you're kind of forcing me to pick just one, so I guess it, it, you know, if I have to do that, I would say young people have the potential to be a competent and successful leader and or follower at any stage in their life. And it doesn't matter which, you know, cultural background you come from, whether you're rich or poor, and and privileged or not privileged. Uh, And, you know, one reason is that communication is a learned behavior. So this book's contents will help these readers on the road to enhancing their communication skills. And uh, that, of course, is a characteristic that all good leaders uh, talk about and suggest that you have to have and also to be a good follower. You know, when you're not leading, you're following. Uh, So we have to move through those particular two roles throughout our our paths in life, and uh, this book will help you do that.
5: Well, when we think of leadership, and as I look at your seven steps, your seven chapters here in your book, Leadership for Adolescents, you know, you see words that uh, ring true. We've heard them before, like motivation and likability and charisma and and uh, humor. Wow, that's, that's one that probably is one of the most important ones, it seems, to really lighten up when you're trying to address serious issues.
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, leadership can be a difficult role. And, uh, you know, oftentimes people say, well, the buck stops with the leader. Of course, that isn't true. You know, each member of the, of the team is also responsible. But we need to have a sense of humor and, and not jokester telling, you know, like a life of the party. But you have to have a lighter side and you have to have the ability to step back, analyze what may have gone wrong or what is going right, and just be pleased about it. Uh, And I find that having, and I I give tips for how to go about to develop a sense of humor uh, and so that you can face some of these issues uh, with an open mind. Uh, Sometimes we, we tend to dwell on certain issues uh, that, that may not or you know, seem to be important to me as a leader, uh, which may not be as important to the followers. So we need to be able to step back, and I even uh, advise in the book, and, and I do this in my training also, is to have people create a humor box. And so when things get really tough, <laughs> you just pull in the drawer and you pull out your humor box and uh, so forth. In fact, one, um, one of my students talked to that uh, with his boss, and so his boss asked me to help him create a humor room for their organization. And so we did that. And, you know, I selected various books and, and various tapes of, and movies that they could watch and, and uh, so forth. So I think humor is, is one that is often overlooked and uh, something that we need to sort of develop throughout our life. Hmm.
5: Very well put and great insight, and that makes so much sense. And it could be applied, obviously, to all areas of life, not just in the business world. Let's talk about this whole concept of being a great leader. You have to be a great listener?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, I found, and and I was uh, interim director of the School of Communication for three years while they were searching for someone, I chose not to take, you know, a permanent position in that respect, but I did lead the department, and, you know, I had a, over 800 students and six faculty, and I had 18 full-time faculty and six, six uh, contract professionals and staff, and, you know, I mean, my day was spent in listening, and most leaders will tell you that, uh, that they do spend a good portion of that time being good listeners, because you cannot uh, help. Uh, you cannot make good decisions unless you've heard the facts and you know how people are feeling, where they're coming from, and uh, what are the best steps uh, to solutions to the problem. And I say yes on solutions because, you know, most people think it's either yes or no. We're either going to do this or we're not going to do this. And oftentimes uh, there's a medium point. So I think to find solutions to a problem or problems or issues, then you need to be able to listen clearly and and um, be able to give good feedback.
5: I remember hearing someone say to another person uh, and questioning whether they were happy or not, and the person said, well, of course I'm happy. And the other person mm-hmm. said, well, tell your face. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> well, that's the that verbal that whole non-verbal. nonverbal. That whole
5: nonverbal, yeah, that's so important.
3: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I talk, one of the things I really am proud about in this book, aside from, you know, Chapter 7, which is about slogans to live by and the research, you know, that I have in that area, is the fact that I talk about the need for integrity. And I, I think that that is extremely important for young people to realize that uh, they need to develop a sense of, of understanding about what is right and what is correct and what everyone thinks we should do. Uh, and, uh, you know, have have it's just not I tell you what to do. It's we work it out uh, together. And, but having that sense of value and having that sense of, of what is good for the group, what is good for the organization, what is good for school, what's good for whatever group that we're, we're working with. And so you have to look at the consequences of your decisions. And sometimes we don't think about that. Uh, So I'm really excited about that chapter also because I think that young people need to understand that we're evaluated uh, and we need to follow people who have a good balance in life, a good, uh, you know, way of looking at the rights and the wrongness for the actions that we do. So that is uh, something that I'm, I'm happy to share with uh, the students who and the young people who
5: read this book. You also have a chapter on decision making in small groups, conflict, and group outcomes. Another chapter and the final chapter keep learning. But I notice in all your at the end of each chapter, you have listed summary, discussion exercises, and then references. Tell us why you did it that way.
3: Well, I believe in order to reinforce learning, we need to engage in some kind of reflection or exercise to draw home the, the, the uh, points that were made in the book. Uh, and so, you know, in the first chapter, The I and Leader, I talk about self-reflection. And, uh, you know, I'm having students do a little journaling and, and writing about where their strengths and weaknesses are. And, you know, it's not... It's horrible that I have a weakness in, you know, public speaking where I'm afraid, you know, to speak up in a group. Uh, It's the idea of recognizing that and then beginning to work on those particular ideas. And, of course, leaders need followers. So a lot of work that leaders do, aside from one-on-one, you know, issues, uh, is to work with groups. And so you need to understand how that works and how you can... Um, you know, be a good group member uh, and how you can lead your groups to making good decisions. And so I wrote three case studies originally uh, for this book uh, so that the students could practice what they would do in those situations. You know, it's a learning process, and so uh, I'm excited for them to be able to go through some of these exercises to reinforce the learning because sometimes we read and then we tend not to, you know, we want to answer questions in school. We get a right and wrong and we get a 100 or we get 80, uh, but we don't get an opportunity to practice. And so, you know, as a trainer also, I think it's it's critical to be able to practice with your peers uh, how you would go about handling these particular uh, scenarios that I've selected for you. And references, you know, you need to read also, uh, and I provided some websites uh, for the students to go to. Uh, you know learning is an everyday effort. Uh, and uh, I've just finished teaching one class at the university. I taught an intercultural class, which was a new experience for me. So it was it was good to learn, uh, you know some new things. So so I think it's it's so very critical to understand that as we move through life, you know you might have more than one career, which I did. Uh, and you need to be able to, uh, you know, prepare yourself for those particular steps in life. Uh, and so this book is a good way to try to understand some of the basics uh, that will be very good for you. And, and I'm hoping that the people will keep this book on their shelf because I've gone back to books <laughs> that, that I've used uh, and had learned from. And, and that knowledge is still good and still there.
5: We've been listening to Carolyn M. Anderson. She is the author of her book *Leadership for Adolescents. Carolyn, tell us how to get your book.
3: Well, you can get my book, uh, of course, through iUniverse, uh, and that's the address uh, in the book. There, uh, it's also on Amazon, and it will be on my website, Facebook, uh, and the other social media uh, as soon as I uh, get you know that a lot of that up and running clearly. Uh, so it is hot off the press Uh, so uh, clearly uh, you know it is out there and there are ways to purchase the book Uh, and also if not you can write to me directly and I'll send you one Uh, so uh, I'm excited about it and uh, certainly with social media today uh, it's not going to be a problem uh, to secure one of the books.
5: Thank you so much Carolyn for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
3: Good thank you and have a nice day